Hello, and welcome to the Nightcast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through the Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 138th episode of the Nauticast titled Battle Hymn, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Sansa 5, in which Sansa sings for mercy, yay, and has to talk to Joffrey and Cersei, boo, as the Battle of the Blackwater begins. You know, even on the brink of the destruction of their entire house, the Lannisters just can't seem to leave Sansa alone. When will they learn? The answer is never. As always, this episode is brought to you by our Not A Small Council, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Word of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas, and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lester Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet, the other woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, War of the West, Harold the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bainfort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the gym that was promised, the Hybrid of Priest, Lord Jake Assisted, to the Head of the King, Lady Zena Valyrium, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, War of the East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Adamus, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Low Energy Dem, True Master of the Bainfort, and True Master of Coin, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's Favorite Sin, Ambassador Chromatica, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Thems, Haldover, The Way for T.Wow, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crow's Eye, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of Hell's Kogarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Warwick, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee, the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Reels of the Seven Kingdoms, Blood of Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion, the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea. Grave Rob Stark, the cadaver king and horror of Harren Hall. Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal, pseudo-democratic system of great councils where in every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who was guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lord Jean, the Splendid, Master of Coin, Ward of Tampa Bay. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Bone Way. Lord Charles Tyrell of House of Highgarden. Lord Paramount the Bander, Defender of the Marshes, High Marshal of the Reach, War of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Squid Pro Quo, Master of Zorse. Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State. Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance. Squire Matt S., Future Matt S., the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms. B-Word, Queen Beyond the Ball, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Blackberry the Bold, Shape of the Field, Good Times, and Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, War of the South, and the patron of free wheeling lesbians. Thank you to all of our small counselors. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler wing, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three decade novels, histories, interviews, the Windsor Staple chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Keith J., our small council master of whispers, who asks, Howdy guys, got a question for you two to chew on since we are approaching the end of Clash. 
At one point, the both of you discussed your feelings on the first book as politics being at the forefront, while magic and the supernatural were reawakening into the Song of Ice and Fire universe, but largely still in the background of the book's narrative for the most part. A few episodes ago, if my memory serves correct, Emmett mentioned Clash being the book where politics and magic intersect. So my question is this, given the way you framed the first two books, what is then your opinion on Storm? That's a great question. What do you think, Jeff? How would you, what's, what is a Storm of Swords about, if you took like the 10,000 foot view? Uh, so mostly, from what I understand, it's a storm, and there are swords involved in said storm. So I'm imagining bold, like a lightning storm. Take. Okay. And, and, you know, instead of like lightning flashing down, it's sword lightning. Get it? Sword lightning. It won't, maybe not won't electrify you, but it'll still stab you. That's what I think A Storm of Swords is about. I could be wrong. It's been a few years since I've read the book. So maybe I need to reread the book. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing, obviously. Um, I, I, the, the impression I get from Storm of Swords about like the magic and the politics is that it kind of like goes back a little bit to a Game of Thrones where we have um, where we have magic kind of like taking a backseat. So here in Clash, we've got like the wildfire. You've got the House of the Undying. You've got the Others. You've got all these things which are which are very much where magic is at the forefront. And of course you got Jojen and Mira and all these magical characters, Melisandre as well. And all those things do exist in a storm of swords, but they kind of like take a back seat a little bit. And the magic picks back up in a piece of crows and a dance with dragons. But then also much like a game of Thrones, you also have the others, which are showing back up. And of course in the prologue to a storm of swords and in, in Chet's horrific prologue, not horrific, but in terms of badly written, but just in terms of who Chet is as a person, they show up immediately at the end of that chapter. And then you have Samuel's first chapter and then Samuel, Samuel two and three, where he's encountering the, the rebellion of the night's watch. And then Sam three, where he's encountering all the whites at the abandoned village like that. That to me, like has kind of a game of Thrones, a, a game of Thrones type feel, but I don't, I don't know. I, I might be like a little bit out of my league. And, and this is one of those places where I've just started to get into like rereading a storm of swords as we're getting into at the end of a clash of Kings. Cause a lot of the events from the end of this chapter and not just this chapter, but a lot of the events from the ends of these chapters uh, all spill over into, into a storm of swords. I'm starting to read into early in a storm of swords, so maybe I need to have my 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 thing my my take refreshed. And that's why I have you, sir, to tell me why I am wrong about this particular question. No, not at all. I think you know, Clash. I think feels like the magic is bigger just because it's more new in Clash of Kings, and George is having characters talk very explicitly and repeatedly about it, like especially in the Carthian chapters where just people are just talking about it constantly. A Storm of Swords does have those elements still with Beric and Thoros, with the others, with all the, you know, weirdness Melisandre's up to behind the scenes. Obviously, I think stuff like the Red Wedding gets a lot of attention. I think what, what links the two to for me, that like A Clash of Kings is about everything getting really complicated in both the political and magical realms. And A Storm of Swords, I think, is about attempts to resolve those complications. Like, I think that's the broadest possible way to put it. Like, that defines, like, you know, Danny liberating the slaves, but also the Red Wedding. <laughs> you know, Mance trying to free his people, but also the White Walkers trying to kill everybody. Like, A Storm of Swords is about people going, okay, screw it. Everything that got built up in A Clash of Kings, <laughs> let's try to cut through all of that yeah. and get something new, whether it's politically or magically. And I think that's why A Storm of Swords is so beloved, because it is so viscerally, like, you know, it's it's... It's cathartic. It's characters trying to seize control of the narrative and do something different with it. Whereas, you know, I get why people in A Feast for Crows where people are just going, ugh, everything's awful. Like, that's most of A Feast for Crows. I love that, but I get why some people don't necessarily. 
Well, I was thinking about this as well. Like, the Storm of Swords opens with the, the others attacking the Fist of the First right. Men. That's exactly. a great magical act. And it concludes, the very the epilogue to A Storm of Swords is the reveal of Lady Stoneheart as, as reborn or undead Catholic. That's Star. true. So, That's a good point. I think George George wants to, wants to wants the focus primarily to be on the politics in A Storm of Swords. But it, much like a Game of Thrones, he's like, hey, listen, magic still is out there. And, like, it will fuck you up. So <laughs> be on the lookout for that because it, it, right. it's coming for you. Really hard come come a feast for crows and and the dance of dragons and especially when we get into the winds of winter. So thank you uh, so much to Keith for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Not a Cast podcast. You're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at Patreon.com/slash Not a Cast A S O I A F, where you can get show notes, bonus episodes, merch, access to the Not a Slack, and all those shoutouts you hear at the start and end of every episode and more. Yeah, and as our periodic reminder, we are actually pretty close at this point to actually achieving that goal, our next Patreon stretch goal. And when we get there, we will do a full multi-part analysis of the first Duncan Agnavella, The Hedge Knight. So if you might be interested in us sticking our literary jaws into Dunk the Lug, consider consider supporting us, Two Hunks, on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Sansa Stark, she had witnessed the opening moves on the Battle of the Blackwater, had a fun chit-chat with Dantos Hollard, and an even more fun chit-chat with Sandra Clegane. And then she had her first period before being hauled in front of Cersei Lannister for another super cheery chat. Let's find out how Sansa's doing just before the war and the bay erupt in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Sansa 5. They had been singing in the sept all morning since the first report of enemy sails had reached the castle. The sounds of their voices mingled with the wicker of horses, the clank of steel, and the groaning hinges of the great bronze gates to make a strange and fearful music. In the sept, they sing for the mother's mercy. Out on the walls, it's the warrior they pray to, and all in silence. Sansa remembered how Septimer Dane used to tell him that the warrior and the mother were only two faces to the same great god. But if there is only one, whose prayers will be heard? These are excellent and very existential questions that Sansa is posing to the gods at the open of this chapter. But beyond that, baby, we are here. It is Blackwater time and this train ain't stopping for six glorious chapters. Sansa is in the Red Keep Royal Sept as Sarah Marin Trant holds the reins for a gilded armor wearing Joffrey to mount. By the way, Joffrey's just now wearing golden lions on his helmet with red armor. It's as if Cersei has stopped giving his shit about passing Joff off as a Baratheon. Sansa, meanwhile, thinks that Joff looks like a bright, shiny knight, but he's an empty suit on the inside, which is just a fucking sick, awesome burn. Tyranny is there, too, and Sansa notes that he has less fine armor and he looks like a kid soldier. But he does have that battle axe strapped to his back, and he has the very, very loyal Sir Mandamore at his side. Tyrion notices that Sansa's there and asks whether she's headed over to Maegar's Holdfast to hang out with all the other ladies in the court. She is, she has, but Sansa is so very, very pleased to have been summoned here by Joffrey to send a ball. Sansa is also here to pray. Ah, uh, yes, but Tyrion's not asking who Sansa will be praying for. Regardless of what happens here, Tyrion declares that this day will change everything for him, his house, and even for Sansa. But she'll be so safe as long as, Sansa! The boys shout ring across the yard. Joffrey had seen her. Sansa, here! He calls me as if he were calling a dog, she thought. 
Tyrion wishes her all the best, hoping to talk to her once the battle is done, and then he's off, and Sansa is bounding over to Joffrey. This truly child soldier gets all saucy down south. He talking about how it's going to be battle so totally soon, and he's so totally going to kill Uncle Stannis in the battle with this new sword. Joffrey drew his sword. The pommel was ruby cut in the shape of a heart set between a lion's jaws. Three fullers were deeply incised in the blade. My new blade, Heart Eater. He'd opened a sword named Lion's Tooth once. He'd owned a sword named Lion's Tooth once, Sansa remembered. Arya had taken it from him and thrown it in a river. I hope Stannis does the same with this one. It's beautifully wrought, Your Grace. Bless my steel with a kiss. He extended the blade down to her. Go on, kiss it. He never sounded more like a stupid little boy. Sansa forces herself to kiss the sword, thinking that she'd rather kiss a sword than Joffrey, but she notices that Joffrey is pleased with the gesture. He tells Sansa that he wants her to kiss the blade when it's red with Stannis' blood. Sansa thinks Joffrey actually killing his uncle with a sword is somewhat unlikely given that he would have all these men around him. They'd kill Stannis for Joffrey, though, if he ever came within, I guess, sword, sword shot. But Sansa has a question for Joffrey. Will you lead your knights into battle? Sansa asked, hoping. I, I, I would, but my uncle, the imp, says my uncle Stannis will never cross the river. I'll command the three whores, though. I'm going to siege to the traitors myself. The prospect made Joff smile. His plump pink lips always made him look pouty. Sansa had liked that once, but now it made her sick. They say my brother Rob always goes where the fighting is thickest, she said recklessly, though he's older than your grace to be sure. A man grown. That made him frown. I'll deal with your brother after I'm done with them, my traitor uncle. I'll gut him with hardier. You'll, you'll see. Shirk it. But then Joffrey is all flanked by Marin Train and Osmond Kettleblack with four gold cloaks around him. Tyrion brings up the rear, guards cheer, and then there's silence. In that silence, Sansa hears singing and turns back to the Sept as others turn with her. Sansa sees that the Sept was crowded and lit well. Part of the reason why it was lit so well was that everyone had lit candles to all the aspects of the Seven. Lots of candles were in front of the mother and the warrior's altars, but the father, Smith, Crone, and Maid had candles lit for them. And there were even candles lit to the stranger. Why? I, I, this is one of my favorite lines from all the Song of Ice and Fire, and I just love this from Sansa. For what was Stannis Baratheon if not the stranger come to judge them? Sansa lights a candle at each of the seven, and then she takes a seat in the pews as everyone joins together in a hymn which I'm going to do for you to the tune of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, which, of course, is just amazing, an amazing hymn. Gentle Mother, font of mercy, save our sons from war, we pray. Stay the swords and stay the arrows. Let them know a better day. Gentle Mother, strength of women, help our daughters through this fray. Soothe the wrath and tame the fury. Teach us all a kinder way. <clears throat> As they sing, Sansa thinks that there are thousands of civilians and bailers set singing. She hopes that the gods are listening. She knows all the hymns anyways with all the people around her. Old serving men, young wives, serving girls, soldiers, cooks, falconers, knights, knaves, squires, spit boys, and nursing mothers. She sang with those inside the castle walls and those without, sang with all the city. She sang for mercy for the living and the dead alike, for Bran and Rickon and Rob, and for her sister Arya and her bastard brother Jon Snow away off on the wall. 
She sang for her mother and her father, for her grandfather, Lord Hoster, and her uncle, Edmure Tully, for her friend, Jane Poole, the old drunken King Robert, for Septa Mordain, and for Sir Dantos, and Jory Cassell, and Maester Lewin, and for all the brave knights and soldiers who had died today, and for the children and the wives who had mourned them, and finally, toward the end, she even sang for Tyrion the Imp and for the Hound. He is no true knight, but he saved me all the same, she told the mother. Save him if you can, and gentle the rage inside of him. The Septon rises up to the high seat, petitions, and then petitions the gods to defend the true and noble king. Upset that the high Septon was praying for Joffrey, not Stannis. Okay, fine, a boy can dream. All the same, Sansa thinks that this guy is full of shit, rises to her feet, and pushes her way out of the Sept as the Septon drones on about the warrior giving Joffrey strength. She hopes his courage fails and everyone deserts him. Get his ass, ass Sansa. Sansa pauses outside and listens to the far-off sounds of the battle. Warhorns, catapults, splashes, splinterings, burning pitch, scorpions, of the and the cries of dying men. She thinks it's like another song, a terrible one. Sansa moves to make Magor's hold fast, and she comes across Lady Tanda and her daughters at the bridge over the dry moat. Tanda's daughter Felice had arrived just yesterday, and now she was trying to get Lolly Stokeworth across the bridge. I don't want to! I don't want to! I don't want to! The battle has begun, Lady Tanda said in a brutal voice. I, I don't want to. I don't want to. Salsa asks if she could help them, but Tanda is looking shameful, says no. Lollies has not been feeling so well lately. Sansa notices a slim, pretty girl with short, dark hair and thinks that she wants to push the girl into a dry mode, even as Lollies continues to yell that she doesn't want to. Sansa, being really lovely in this scene, tells Lollies that they'll be protected at Baker's Holdfast and they'll get to eat and drink. But Lolly still doesn't want to. You have to, her sister Felice said sharply. And that is the end of it. Shay, help me. They each took an elbow and together half dragged and half carried Lollies across the bridge. Sansa followed with their mother. She's been sick, Lady Tanda said. If a babe had been termed to sickness, Sansa thought, it was common gossip that Lollies was with child. Sansa passes Selsers dressed up like Lancer sworn men guarding the door and on and on and she goes on into the Queen's ballroom. This ballroom wasn't as big as the small hall in the Tower of the Hand, but it could still seat a hundred people and seemed graceful with all the silver mirrors, rushes, and music playing from the balcony. Almost all of the noble women of the city, along with some old dudes and youngins, sit at the tables. The women were all related by marriage, parentage, or birth to the men fighting Stannis, and everyone knows that many of them wouldn't be coming home alive. And everyone also feels the weight of that knowledge. Sansa moves to sit at Queen Cersei's right hand, but she sees Sir Ellen, Ta Sir Ellen Payne standing in the shadows. He almost seems to notice her stare and starts to turn towards her. What is he doing here? She asked Osfried Kettleblack. He captained the Queen's new red cloak guard. Osfried grinned. Oh, her grace expects she'll have need of him before the night's done. Sir Ellen was the King's justice. There was only one service he might be that might be needed. Whose head does she want? But before Sansa can get her question answered, her grace, Cersei, is announced by the royal steward. Cersei shows up dazzling as she always does, wearing a snowy white gown, same color as the king's guard cloak. Her sleeves were lined with golden satin, her blonde hair curled down to her bare shoulders. She looks innocent, almost like a maid, but there was color on her cheeks. Cersei asks that everyone be seated and that everyone is so very, very welcome here. She turns to Sansa. You look pale, Sansa, Cersei observed. Is your red flower still blooming? Yes. How apt. The men will bleed out there and you in here. The queen signaled for the first course to be served. Why is Sir Ellen here? Sansa blurted out. The queen glanced at the mute headsman. 
to deal with treason, and to defend us if needs be. He was a knight before he, had, before he was a headsman. She pointed her spoon toward the end of the hall where the tall wooden doors had been closed and barred. When the axes smashed down those doors, you may be glad of him. I would be glad of him if he were the hound, Sansa's thought. Harsh as Sandra Clegane was, she did not believe he would let any harm come to her. Won't your guards protect us? Well, uh, according to Cersei, they need protection from said guards. She says this while side-eyeing Osfrey Kettleblack, and then we get an all-timer for Cersei. Loyal sellswords, well, they are rare as virgin whores. If the battle is lost, my guards will trip on those crimson cloaks in their haste to rip them off. They'll steal what they can and flee, along with the serving men, washerwomen, and stable boys, all out to save their own worthless hides. Do you have any notion what happens when a city is sacked, Sansa? No. No, you wouldn't, would you? All you know of life you've learned from singers. And there's such a dearth of good sacking songs. True knights would, would never harm women and children. The words rang hollow in her ears even as Sansa said them. True knights. The queen seemed to find that wonderfully amusing. Oh, no doubt you're right, Sansa. So why don't you just sit there and eat your broth like a good girl and wait for Simeon Star Eyes and Prince Aemon the Dragonite to come rescue you, sweetling? I'm sure it won't be very long now. And that is A Clash of Kings, Sansa 5. You know, it's kind of a short chapter, and there's going to be several short chapters as we get into the Blackwater here. But I think this is a really excellent chapter, even though it's short, and it sets us up really well for the Blackwater. What do you think, sir? Well, all through A Clash of Kings, this has been our destination. Arriving here with you feels like we've been driving to Vegas at night, and now we're seeing the lights suddenly emerge before us. The Battle of Blackwater is the climax of the book, and the most, the most iconic battle sequence of the entire story so far. It's a work of staggering ambition, unfolding across three different POVs, while the rest wait in the wings. George is putting everything he has as an artist into every aspect of this gargantuan set piece, and in every aspect, it succeeds. Imagery, suspense, characterization, the shocking twists and turns of the battle itself... All of it is as sublime as it's possible to be, in both concept and execution. Sansa V is not the most attention-grabbing of the six chapters that make up the Blackwater. There's no wildfire in this one. But it sets the tone perfectly, and does so in an emotionally moving way. Even before we see the battle, we can feel it begin. Yeah, you really do feel like the, the sense of dread and excitement, maybe both at the same time, for, for me anyways, uh, as the battle is approaching for Sansa. And I really did kind of like harken back to something you were saying back in Sansa 4. I, I love that point you were making, that Sansa is going to be our primary point of view for the battle and its aftermath. And I think a really strong piece of evidence for your viewpoint can be found here. This is really the first true Battle of the Blackwater chapter. George has successfully set the Battle of Blackwater up in all the previous Sansa and Tyrion chapters, but here the war horns are sounding, catapults are throwing stones, and the screams of dying men can be heard faintly in the distance. To get this through Sansa's point of view first is both unique and awesome. Unique because the roles of women and non-combatants on the battlefield are typically minimized in fictional fantasy settings or even in historical tellings of actual sacks and sieges, unless it's after the city has been taken and there's a sack in the way. And then the accounts are really about how sad that this would occur. Oh, oh take me to the fainting couch. But Sansa <laughs> George wants us to look before any potential sack and slaughter. He wants the camera pulled away from the action and wants an auditory experience. 
It's like the civilians of Rohan hiding in the caves of Helm's Deep. Yes, my wife and I have been watching Lord of the Rings. Spare me. Listening to the orcs bang their spear butts against the ground. The sounds of war are barely within earshot, and we come away from the experience feeling the heightened danger and excitement for me and ready to see this goddamn thing explode. You make an excellent point that George engages our ears before he engages our eyes. Sansa is listening to the battle approach. But not only that, she's also listening to everyone singing in response to the sounds of battle. The sounds overlap what she calls a strange and fearful music. It's the auditory equivalent of when Arya smelled both cooking meat and corruption at the same time that you talked about back in the Riverlands. This is what it means for both Stark sisters to grow up, hovering on the threshold between innocence and experience. It's all in where you're standing, as Egret told John. Sansa is literally and figuratively standing in such a way as to hear both kinds of songs. The hopeful sound of prayer is shot through with the battle hymn of the stranger, the knowledge with maturity that we are forsaken. It's a layering effect of both sounds and tones, as though Sansa is looking at the world through glasses with lenses of different colors. This process isn't just happening to Sansa, however. She is taking part in it. She gets that the element in common between these two sets of sounds is the desire for divine intervention. Please, save us from ourselves. Those who can't fight pray out loud to the mother for her mercy. Those who must fight pray silently to the warrior for luck in battle against the enemy. As Sansa realizes, these prayers are contradictory. The prayer to the mother asks for an end to the battle. Everyone cast down your spears. The prayer to the warrior, however, is a prayer for victory and for courage. Don't let me flinch from the killing blow when the moment comes, as, as Brienne will talk about in A Feast for Crows. These, these prayers, they both can't come true. Yet Sansa remembers being told that the seven are faces of a singular god. The warrior and mother are one. How does that one god manage contradictory prayers? It's the same point Jamie made to Catelyn. No matter what you do, you're forsaking a promise. Sansa is starting to critically interrogate the systems in which she was raised, the unquestioned assumptions as familiar as the stories. She notes that even as the singers try to drown out the sounds of battle, she could still hear men dying if she tried to, if she pays attention. And she is no longer able to drown it out because, you know, her father's execution and the bread riots, it's all just crashing down. You know, I'm reminded of uh, one of my really good friends is a, is a really strong Catholic. And whenever I would ask him questions about theology that he just didn't have a good answer, he would say, ah, oh, it's, a, it's a mystery. It's, it's a mystery. And that you could feel that throughout these, these questions that Sansa is posing about how can the God as, as multiple seven persons answer con contradicting conflicting prayers. It's a mystery. Well, unless you believe that the faith is seven or not real, which of course they seem very much to be not in this in this series. And I think like also too, like you were talking about like everything crashing down and what it means to have these contradictory senses going on. It's it's kind of George's continued play on this idea that sweet smells are sometimes used to cover up foul ones. But here he's engaging a different sense besides smell, namely sound, as we always talking about the, uh, before. Heart music can cover up the sounds of people dying in the distance. We kind of close our ears to things that upset us or we try to distract ourselves because Sansa is subconsciously thinking that it could be her dying moans she could be hearing very soon. And that's a thought pattern that could drive her, and us, frankly, mad. 
Another country aspect of all this praying is that the people praying for the mother's mercy or the warrior's strength are hoping that the same prayers offered by the enemy won't be answered. I mean, remember, not everyone in Stannis' side is a signatory on to, to Berlor. In fact, many of these folks were fighting for Renly just a few weeks before this moment. So, and they're also praying, and many still and will continue to profess allegiance to the faith of the seven after the Battle of the Blackwater, Davos Seaworth being only the most prominent example, as we find out in A Storm of Swords. Does the divine show favoritism to one side or another? That, that's certainly what everyone on all sides is, is hoping here. It, it speaks to something, because you reference this, you name dropped the Forsaken before, I have to bring it up again. It speaks to something we covered in the Forsaken episodes. God, are, are you there? Do you care about me, Aaron Dampere, Sansa Stark, Davos Seaworth, Tyrion Lannister? If we lose, have you forsaken us? Have you stopped caring about us and loving us? That forsaken feeling is what Davos will experience on that speck of rock that he ends up early in A Storm of Swords. And here at the start of Sansa V in A Clash of Kings, it's equally wrenching. Sansa knows there is no escape even if her prayers for survival in this moment are answered. Cersei is still going to be around even if they win. Tyrion might be around as well. And Joffrey will definitely fucking remain. Yeah, speaking of Joffrey, you know, Sansa didn't wander over here of her own accord, she was summoned by Joffrey, as in her earlier chapters in the book, as a prize pet. That's what Sansa amounts to in Joffrey's eyes, as she realizes. She gets her revenge for this constant humiliation, the only place she can, in her thoughts, which she shares with us. She sums up Joffrey perfectly. Bright, shining, and empty. That's the contrast between the image and the reality George hammers home throughout Sansa's story. She used to be all about the bright and shining surface, now she can perceive the emptiness underneath. The king on the Iron Throne is an empty suit of armor, a shadow on a wall. His claim is illegitimate, his behavior is sadistic, his leadership non-existent. The splendid red and gold armor does not indicate his inner worth, but rather covers up for the lack of same. Beauty can be turned against you, that's a lesson Sansa has had to learn, very painfully. Absolutely. And at the same time, like one of the her teachers has been Cersei Lannister. And I'm, I'm just like kind of like scratching my head at the optics of Cersei sending Joffrey out to battle in Lannister colors because it's either well, it's, it's all it's both these things. It's both not very bright and also probably seemingly that Cersei doesn't give a shit anymore. Let me explain. Davos is later going to remark that Stannis' navy should have come into King's Landing with Baratheon colors and fought in Robert's name instead of a stranger, and which has a dual meaning, of course, the stranger's banner. And that applies here, but kind of in reverse. Everyone knows that the Lannister colors are red and gold and that the Lannisters are blonde of hair. And now that Stannis' letter has gone out and has made its way out to the population, as evidenced by all those people declaring Cersei a brotherfucker and Joffrey a bastard during the ride in King's Landing, Cersei now sends him into battle looking the very soul of a Lannister. Now, Cersei may be thinking that Joff should look like Jamie Lannister in his swirling crimson finery to inspire the men, or, as may be more likely the case, she's flaunting her own ego by having Joffrey go into battle looking as Lannister as humanly possible. The angle works, this angle works almost as if Cersei is sending Joffrey out on a suicidal last charge because she thinks that the city is going to fall anyways. As we get more into the Blackwater, that does seem to be Cersei's perspective. She gets drunker, lets down her guard and facade, and starts talking about how Sir Ellen Payne is going to be killing everyone because she won't be able to seduce Stannis into sparing her life. So if she goes out, she's going to go out in Lannister style, not giving a damn about telegraphing that Joffrey is a Lannister through and through. Yeah, I think you're right. That is consistent with Cersei's personality as it continues to disintegrate, as we'll see in the, <laughs> the Sansa chapters to come. 
Tyrion, by contrast, doesn't fit the beauty standard you're talking about. He's the adult, not Joffrey, but Sansa says he looks like a child in his armor. There's nothing childish about that battle axe of his, however, because unlike Joffrey, Tyrion will actually be riding into battle. So you got style versus substance there, and certainly that makes us more inclined to admire Tyrion than Joffrey. But Tyrion is unslinging that axe to keep Joffrey in power. He tells his men different in the moment to hold them together when he's leading that sortie, but... I mean, that's the outcome of Tyrion's suicidally brave last stand, is that the bright, shining, empty king wins. As he is throughout the book, Tyrion is caught here between his personal desire to do justice, as he said, and his political imperative to toe the Lannister company line. Tyrion thinks too late that he really should have sent Sansa off to safety with Tommen, but he can only abandon her now to Cersei's tender mercies. His attempt to reach out to her courteously is limited by the awkward mutual awareness that they are on different sides of this war. As he says, he can't assume Sansa is praying for the Lannisters. He won't ask. He doesn't want to know. There can be no honesty between them. Yeah, it's interesting because the lack of honesty between Tyrion and Sansa is an extension of much the same between Tyrion and the rest of his family. When Tyrion jokes around with Sansa about not asking who she's praying for, it it engenders some sympathy for Tyrion because, hey, look at that, someone who has self-awareness of this nest of fucking liars. But that sympathy only extends so far. As you were saying, Tyrion knows that he's fighting on behalf of a monster, and he knows that injustice is flowing from the Iron Throne. And yet Tyrion has been inculcated with a twisted notion of family first by Tywin and of operating in his Lord Father's stead. And much like Tywin, that family first model revolves around self-preservation. And that self-preservation is sourced to the lie that is Joffrey is both Robert's true-born son and also that Joffrey is the true king in action. So much of what we've seen in A Clash of Kings is Joffrey acting like a slightly more restrained version of Aerys II Targaryen, sociopathic murders, psychosexual assaults on Sansa, tortures, etc., On this read uh, for Tyrion, though, I got this impression of Rhaegar when he's riding out to the Trident from King's Landing, knowing that he's supporting a monster on the Iron Throne. Rhaegar might have told Jaime that, quote, changes will be made, as Jaime reveals in in a feast for crows. But first, uh, you gotta, you know, go and kill the rebels who, by the way, were righteous and rising against my dad's delegitimizing sociopathy. You know, the same delegitimizing sociopathy that I was probably attempting to overthrow just two years past at the Tourney of Harrenhal. Isn't that kind of Tyrion too here? He's fighting for Aerys Light, riding out to battle against the rightful king, by by birth at least, fighting for an unjust cause. And that begs the question, can you fight honorably for dishonorable people and causes? No, 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 no. This is no personal ramifications for (laughs) for me whatsoever. It's not something that I struggle with on a daily, on the daily, on the reg. Nothing at all to do with me personally, of course. At least you, at least you do struggle with it. Joffrey has no such conflict going on. He's a... He's well beyond such such moral conflicts. He unabashedly treats Sansa like a prop, using her to inflate his ego prior to battle. I say prior to battle, but Joffrey never gets anywhere close to the actual battle. It's all stage management on Tyrion's part. Joffrey wants Sansa to kiss his sword to work out his developing sexual desires, rooted in his love of do- in, uh, rooted in his love of domination in all forms. He promises that she'll kiss Stannis's blood and then robs. But it's play-acting, every bit as much as Sansa's performed courtesies. In her head, she revels in the truth. Arya took away Joffrey's previous sword. Maybe Stannis will take this one away. Sansa is afraid of Stannis's fiery banners, but as with the Great Sept, he's a powerful figure in her mind associated with the destruction of everything in King's Landing that she hates. 
Sansa does break character to taunt Joffrey for his pantomime. Rob is the real deal, she points out, always going where the fighting is thickest. But he's older, a man grown, a king who is more than bright, shining, and empty. Joffrey instead rides off to enjoy his pointless torture. There's a palpable tension in scenes like this as Sansa risks herself by poking at Joffrey, followed by relief on our part that she got away with it. As the tension fades, she's left alone with the rest, as you were saying earlier. It's that behind-the-scenes-of-war feeling, like with Bran in the Game of Thrones, as you said, when Rob rode off. That's a, that's a great point, I, and I think that's exactly what George is going for, that same sort of dynamic that, that Sansa is experiencing here, that Bran experienced back in the Game of Thrones, which is something I'll talk about later on between Bran and Sansa. And you, you have to also admire Sansa's courage and intelligence in, the, in this scene. I mean, for one, she's one of the few, besides Tyrion and Sandor Clegane intermittently, who stand up to Joffrey's cruelty. Unlike Tyrion, who can rely on his sellswords and his mountain clansmen, or Sander, who can rely on his sheer size and ferocity, Sansa is essentially defenseless from Joffrey's brutalities. Yet, she tells this brat that he's less of a warrior than her brother Rob, who of course is older, but also personally leading cavalry charges, besieging castles, and doing the things a storybook warrior king should be doing in a wartime setting. On the point about Rob being older, I love how Sansa helps to fulfill an earlier plot point from all the way back in A Game of Thrones, when Joffrey and Rob are sparring in the Winterfell Yard and we get this exchange. Rob may be a child, Joffrey said. I am a prince, and I grow tired of swatting at Starks with the blade sword. You, gave, you got more swats than you gave, Joff, Rob said. Are you afraid? Prince Joffrey looked at him. Oh, terrified, he said. You're so much older. And then later, come and see me when you're older, Stark, if you're not too old. Now, as we were talking about back in that scene, when George was writing that in A Game of Thrones, this is very early on, and likely a scene that was written before he dispatched his pitch letter out to his uh, to his, uh, to his book agent in 1993. So that was actually setting groundwork for the pitch letter, which talked about Rob killing Joffrey in battle. But I, I actually, you know, coming back to it now, I rather prefer the way that George pays it off with Sansa getting to tell Joffrey off one last time, telling the ki- showing the king that Rob is not merely playing at war the way that Joffrey is about to. And as it turns out, Joffrey will be terrified to be in his first battle and will be yanked from the battlefield when he's not in any real danger anyhow, resulting in the collapse of Lance morale and the near collapse of the Lancer calls altogether. These optics, the beauty and chivalry that Joffrey rides out to battle with, they all end up proving empty as Joffrey proves a hollow suit of armor and comes running home to Mama. Yeah, that's a great point. I love how George just threads Joffrey's uselessness and pointless bravado throughout the whole battle and afterwards, like in the scene in the throne room in Sansa's final chapter in this book when he cuts himself on the Iron Throne and screams for Cersei. And that's the last we see of him, the victorious king in the book A Clash of Kings. And that's just a very, very pointed message, I think, on George's part. So the heart of this chapter, of course, is Sansa joining the singers in the Sept. It's beautiful imagery put in service of pure feeling. George lovingly describes the shafts of sunlight turned into rainbows by the crystals, the candles twinkling everywhere like stars as though we're in the cosmos. It's the rainbow style of a clash of kings in full bloom. We talk about George as a lapsed Catholic a fair amount, but he clearly still loves the aesthetic of the Mother Church. In that way, he's a lot like Martin Scorsese, another boomer icon raised in that same New York area. Scorsese originally dreamed of entering the priesthood. He wound up worshipping at the altar of movies instead, but all of his movies, even his gangster movies, reflect his love for the idea, if not the reality, of Catholicism. In Mean Streets, the protagonist Charlie, played by Harvey Keitel, stares at a display of votive candles, the shine reflected in his eyes. In voiceover, he passionately decries the rituals of the church and declares he'll worship in his own way. This scene with Sansa in the Sep has a similar meaning to it. 
Sansa is losing her faith in the institutions and stated beliefs of her religion. And yet there's something magical about this moment. The candles, the rainbow light, the singing. George just writes it so beautifully. The air was hot and heavy, smelling of incense and sweat, crystal kissed and candle bright. It made her dizzy to breathe it. The Sept briefly functions the way temples are supposed to, as oases from the fallen world in which we can reach for something higher. A sense of harmony prevails. All seven faces of God are being worshipped, just as the sounds blurred together outside. The mother and the warrior have their candles, but so too do Smith, Crone, Maid, Father, and even the shadowy face of the stranger. Catelyn said in the Sept down at Storm's End that she could get no comfort from the face of the stranger because the stranger stands in for death. The stranger is an outcast, dwelling in the spaces between things, half-human and unknowable, observing, judging, waiting for us to falter. The stranger is terrifying, yet to ignore them does not diminish their power. Catelyn looked away from the stranger's face, but they arrived all the same in the form of Stannis' shadow to slay Renly. The worshippers in this sept do not look away from the stranger like Catelyn. Instead, they worship the stranger along with the rest, albeit not as enthusiastically. <laughs> One must stare into the face of death to live fully, and that's what they're doing here. That's a great point. I think it's it's hard when you're in the potential of, of dying, but very proximately instead of like something being far off or even something being academic. It's very much within earshot, as, as we talked about. And I think it's also a, bit, a brilliant bit of transition to have Sansa go from the empty suits of beautiful gleaming armor and false chivalry to a beautiful sept burning incense and candles, but no substance behind said optics. George himself, as we've talked about as well, besides him being a lapsed Catholic, is agnostic on whether God in the real world or gods exist. And that agnosticism gets it gets its extension in the faith of the seven in A Song of Ice and Fire. There very likely is nothing behind the seven statues and aspects of God as there is no faith of the seven God behind it all. It's just a series of beautiful images and gorgeous rituals that captivate Sansa and the rest of the congregants in the sept. However, just because there is no ethereal power there, it doesn't mean that these images are still not powerful in and of themselves. All the candles burning, casting light and shadows on the wall mean something. Power resides where men believes it resides. And here in this sept, power resides in those images because people have imbued power onto them. As we record this episode, we're entering into the Christmas season in the United States in 2020. And even though I kind of personally look at a lot of the traditions I grew up around as see them as kind of empty and hollow, I also can't shake that feeling that Sansa and the rest of the congregants and even George seems to feel when he enters a church, if he enters a church. Those images, however false, give the illusion of safety to those congregants, much as the prayers offered to the warrior by the men on and under the walls of King's Landing give comfort and even strength to the men about to die. That's the true power here, but as we'll find out in A Feast for Crows, the image can only extend and only take the people in King's Landing so far. There has to be a there there behind the images, and the sparrows, unfortunately, will provide that there there in just two books' time. Yeah, you're right. That's when the politics of the Faith of the Seven become much more, much more concrete. And here it seems to be more about, yeah, a metaphor for power and a metaphor for how art works. As I said, in the Stormlands, the gods are archetypes we apply to our own lives, figurative masks to wear, just as with storytelling. Sansa has now matured enough to make this connection, the metaphorical leap from the archetype to the individual. Who is the stranger, she asks? Stannis, she answers. He is the face of death for these people now, as he was for Catelyn. 
I love this line when she says, who is Stannis Baratheon but the stranger come to judge us? It perfectly captures Stannis as an intense figure of Catholic dread and guilt, as I talked about him upon his introduction in the prologue to this book. We are all sinners. We will all be judged and punished accordingly. This is the cleansing fire foreshadowed by the street preacher in Tyrion VI. The comparison to the stranger also further establishes Stannis' duality. The stranger is morally ambiguous, a shapeshifter, just as Stannis is made up of equal parts hero and villain, both playing themselves out in his story. Sansa is eager for the destruction of House Lannister that he currently represents, but also afraid of what will happen to the city and herself in the process. She lights a candle to him and all the rest before joining the singers at the benches. She sits between an old woman and a boy as young as Rickon. That's the full arc of life right there. Youth, maturation, and aging, all sitting together like links in a chain. They're like the gods, like the threefold goddess, made mother and crone. But they're not gods, they're humans, thrown together by the war. I think George is suggesting that we can find divine grace, not in literal gods and churches, but in the presence of each other, if only temporarily. This song is not just a tribute to peace. It is peace. This is what it looks like, feels like, sounds like. All the faces we wear, no longer separate, tormented in isolation. The walls come down, and we cherish one another. Sansa thinks that the gods must surely hear them. I don't think that's true. But I also think it doesn't really matter What matters is how good it feels for Sansa to have someone to hold on to. The comfort a touch can give, as her mother said to Brienne. And yeah, the hymn reminds Sansa of her mother. Happier days at Winterfell. Catelyn herself had learned that hymn in her cherished childhood days at Riverrun. After that innocence died in the war, she carried the hymn with her to the cold north with its nameless gods and passed it on to her kids. A fragment of home. And that's what it is for Sansa now. A fragment of home. And so Sansa sings her battle hymn, a plea for peace, not a negotiated ceasefire, not a reworking of government policy. She pleads not for a pragmatic political transformation, but a seismic spiritual one. She pleads for the gods to teach us how not to fight. Help us decide as one that it is acceptable to throw down our arms and refuse. Teach us how to improve ourselves. Teach us a kinder way so we can soothe our fury. I come back, as I always do, to the great American novel Gravity's Rainbow (laughs) and a fantasy of peace in there where the characters just long for the leaders of the world to just say, and I quote, oh, fuck it. I'm sending all the soldiers home. We'll close down the weapon factories. We'll dump all the weapons in the sea. I'm sick of war. I'm sick of waking up every morning afraid I'm going to die. Sansa has been tapping into a sick dread undergirding everything, a collective emotion that demands a response, a need for release. We will see this emotion unleashed in the joyous bells that follow the battle. Sansa is praying for something worth surviving for. Her prayer is answered not by the gods, but by the people around her. She's singing with all kinds of people, all ages, all classes, She's singing for people outside the sept, those on the walls, those on the ships, those who will die, and those who will be left behind. Sansa is affirming their common humanity, even after everything she's been through, and despite everything they are all about to go through. In singing, she reaches out to her family and her friends, the living and the dead, 
the residents of the world of her childhood. This is the only way she can connect with them. It's not the real thing, but it's all she has. She even sings for Tyrion and Sandor. Within the space of a song, you can achieve empathy. It's a metaphor for art and how it puts us in the shoes of another. It can make you want mercy for them. Yeah, and, and that, that aspect of mercy is, is brought up so strongly in how Sansa phrases it to, to Sandor Clegane and when she's thinking about him because she's seeing for the mother's mercy for the hound here in this scene. And, and knowing that Sandor Clegane's mother disappeared in mysterious Gregorian circumstances, Sansa acts as mother to Sandor Clegane here, signaling the role she'll occupy in her penultimate chapter when Sandor Clegane shows up back in her room. It's, it's a, and I was saying this in the, in the mini-sode, it's almost as if Sansa is singing, again, because I'm watching Lord of the Rings with my wife, it, that scene with, when Aragorn is, is gentling the horse that was ridden by Theodrid, Theoden's son, who has gone mad after the battle, and Aragorn is you know petting and talking gently to, to the horse. It's almost like she's singing to a wild animal, attempting to gentle the rage and horror and fear within him. You know, it, even this song, Gentle Mother, it's, it's the same from... This scene that we hear, we have here in the in the step to that scene in her penultimate chapter that she sings to Sandor Clegane, and Sandor Clegane responds to to what Sansa is, is putting forward that offer of mercy and the gentle mother, the mother that he never had, because he weeps at the end of that song, and says little dove or little bird, and then he walks away, and that song is just coming just two Sansa chapters from now, and that fulfillment is just so emotionally resonant and powerful it's it makes me even have a spare very spare emotion empathy is a is an amazing experience it can make you look at a person look at yourself a whole new way but there are limits as soon as the septon calls upon the gods to defend joffrey sansa stands and leaves shouldering her way past everyone she wishes not mercy upon joffrey but the opposite failure humiliation a curse called down from the gods the mood of harmony disappears. That's not necessarily a bad thing, however. Rather, Sansa is establishing mature limitations on her empathy. Joffrey does not deserve it. He does not deserve it because of his treatment of her, and also because his power and behavior winds up getting in the way of empathetic politics kind of all the time. One of the great human contradictions is that an ideal world has a place for everyone, but there are people who will stand directly in the way of that world, so what place can there be for them? In order to create a more loving world, the obstacles must be seen as such, without that love getting in the way. Well, how do you manage that paradox? It's similar to the agonizing questions John and Danny face in A Dance with Dragons. You want a world in which humanity, all of humanity, unites against the others. But how do you unite with the likes of Ramsay? You want a world at peace, but how do you make peace with people determined to roll back liberation? No one really has that figured out. Growing up is about trying to get better at it, especially get better than your forebears. This is Sansa trying to make sense of it, and I think it's a powerful moment on that basis. I, I absolutely agree. It's an extremely powerful moment to have her recognize that there's limitations on the that kind of pacifist mindset of beating swords into plowshares because Joffrey will continue committing violence on Sansa and will never stop until he is stopped himself. What separates Joffrey from Sandor Clegane and Tyrion Lannister, and I think this is interesting because these are people who are fighting on behalf of, of, of Joffrey. Joffrey seemingly doesn't worship at the altar of the warrior who quote unquote defends the weak. Joffrey... I <laughs> 
in, in, in a weird way, might find a more relatable religious home in Berlore of Melisandre mm. burning innocence at the, at the pyre. Mm-hmm. The distinguishing factor is one you were referencing a few weeks back. You know, most of the people who are fighting in wars are just normal, everyday people who commit a war crime here and there, like your Steel Shanks Waltons, but they return to some form of peace thereafter. That's most people. That's not true for Ramsay or Gregor or the Tower Prince or the Weeper. Fuck that guy or especially Joffrey of House Baratheon. The dude telling Sansa that he wants her to kiss his sword when it's red with blood. Yeah, that that demonstrates someone who isn't into this war shit to defend the people. They're all in on the violence in terms of inflicting hurt and pain and death upon people. For peace to occur, this is just my opinion, they have to be stopped. And so far in the story and in the real world, there hasn't been a means to do so other than violence itself, which, of course, is another like inherently human contradiction in, in the human condition, I think. So Sansa kind of runs away from those sounds, those horrible kind of human contradictions clashing outside the walls. She leaves the Sept and she walks to Magor's Holdfast, where she will spend all of Sansa 6 and the first chunk of Sansa 7. As Sansa describes it, Magor's Holdfast is a castle within a castle. It's as far from the battle as possible. Cersei has promised the noble-born non-combatants of the Red Keep that they will be safe here. George spends this final part of the chapter showing us all the ways that's not true. There's no safety to be found anywhere. In Sansa 6, Cersei will make that clear in multiple ways. I mean, it's Magor's holdfast. Even a first-time reader has been made familiar with Magor, one of the worst Targaryen monarchs. This is not a comforting sign. Right away, Sansa sees the illusion breaking down. At the drawbridge, she comes across the Stokeworth women. Felice has recently returned to King's Landing with a fresh levy of troops, the image of security. Everything's going to be fine. But that feeling of security is not taking hold, even among the Stokeworths themselves. Lawless is holding everyone up, refusing to enter the holdfast. Lawless doesn't articulate why she doesn't want to go inside. More than likely, she can't. It doesn't seem like Lawless ever gave free rein to her emotions before, and now she's been traumatized by gang rape. She might be terrified of the social obligations, or of Cersei as an individual, or of any son of the war. The point is is that she's been reduced to expressing her fears in the most repetitive and childish fashion, yet her own relatives have no sympathy for her. Certainly it must be trying to face these struggles with Lawless every day. I, I certainly, as I said before, kind of feel for Shay in this situation because she has just no power whatsoever. But it's chilling to see how Lawless's mother and sister are more concerned with what others will think of them. Just as Cersei is pretending that they are safe, so do the Stokeworths try to conceal Lawless's raw pain from sight, lest it embarrass them. In both cases, the norms of polite society demand that you lie. These people cannot honestly address what is happening to and around them. Tanda even lies about Lawless's kind of obvious pregnancy, pretending she's sick. They refuse to afford her the slightest of dignities. Sansa is a more well-intentioned individual than Tanda and Felice Stokeworth. She speaks to Lawless gently. Her human decency persists even in this situation. But the specific words she uses to try and make Lawless feel better are Cersei's words. Sansa is repeating her lies. We're safe here. I don't fault Sansa for that. What, I mean, telling Lawless the truth? The truth is that Lawless is right to be terrified, and the only reason for her to hide it is to make everyone else feel better. Telling her that isn't going to help her. What can Sansa do but lie? 
The same question arises with Sweet Robin in A Feast for Crows, when Sansa is wondering if there's such thing as an honorable lie. Does Sansa feel comfortable making use of the same sweet lies she herself used to believe? I mean, I, I do wonder whether this is a play on what you were describing from that scene in the Sept. It's not the hashtag objective truth. It's it's about what makes us feel better before the possibility, the strong possibility at this point of, of death. It's comforting to be in a castle within city walls within a holdfast of that castle. There are several layers of protection from the men who are trying to kill, rape, and slaughter the people inside. And even though Lollies is scared, and even though Felice, Tanda, and Shay are acting pretty shamefully, there is value in sweet-sounding lies here. Maybe. That's how Sansa has been operating as a hostage here in King's Landing, learning to lie to protect herself from, from her oppressors. This is something that's been a defining factor of her arc as she's lying to Joffrey about how much she loves Joffrey and keeps lying to Sandra Clegane about how she hopes that Rob is defeated and how he's a traitor and all those types of things. These are not things that she actually believes. But now she's applying lies to convince someone to do something they don't want to do, attempting to provide comfort to someone else through those lies. Now, at this point in her journey, Sansa might not even be kind of consciously putting it all together, connecting her knowledge that Megar's holdfast isn't safe with convincing Lollies to cross the dry moat. But later, after further education in King's Landing and in the Eyrie, Sansa will reflect on the lies that Littlefinger tells her, thinking, he is serving me lies as well, Sansa realized. They were comforting lies, though, and she thought them meant kindly. A lie is not so bad if it is kindly meant, if only she believed them. Sansa is starting to make the conscious decision to use lies and that lies are all right so long as they're kindly meant. I don't know. To me, maybe this is a little bit cynical on my part, but that seems to be like good raw queen making material that may come in handy later on. I think there's clear individual cases of it, like with Sansa trying to help Lawless. It's just the question of like what kind of person you become after you do that every day. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just the cumulative effect. And I think, I think Sansa has a stronger head on her shoulders to begin with maybe than Littlefinger and Cersei in this regard, but she also just has to watch for that kind of gradual decay, which I think all these older people have dealt with. And the theme of comforting deceptions blurring into scary realities continues as Sansa steps inside. She knows those aren't proper Lannister guards on the steps. Sure, they wear the Lannister colors, but their undisciplined conduct reveals them to be dressed-up sellswords. Sansa used to focus only on the colors, the image, now she, now she sees reality revealed through actions. A year ago, Sansa might have believed she was safe with these men. They're wearing the right colors. Now she's starting to know better. A year ago, she would have fallen uncritically in love with the Queen's ballroom. It's all arched windows and reflected light. It's like a cinematographer's dream. Now Sansa can't help but realize that all this beauty exists to cover up fire and blood. The velvet hangings are there to drown out the sound of the battle. And it doesn't matter, Sansa thinks. The battle is with us. We carried it inside like a virus. It's in our trembling hands, our laughter on the verge of sobs. It's all over Sir Illyn Payne, the embodiment of death in Sansa's storyline just as he was back in book one. Only this time he has her father's sword, the emblem of family and home, a model of justice worthy of her belief has been stolen and corrupted, now belonging to her enemy's bloodhound. Illyn Payne is here, as Osford Kettleblack tells Sansa, because Cersei might need him. That's how Osford Kettleblack puts it, need him. Even this violent, tough guy <laughs> relies on euphemisms for violence. There's a battle going on outside, but we're still talking about we might need him. Just say it. 
Sansa has to say the truth in her own mind. Illin Payne is here because Cersei anticipates executing people. Again, there is no safety here. George cuts right from that revelation to Cersei's introduction. As the royal steward declares her titles, we should be thinking of this implied violence. That's what undergirds all the beautiful objects and rhetoric in this room. Cersei is dressed in white, making her look innocent, as Sansa says, but the color in her cheeks suggests she has already started drinking, which is impressive given how much she drinks during the battle. Her first words to Sansa cut right through the performed courtesies. Are you still bleeding? Good. They'll bleed out there and you in here. Now that speaks to how suffering continues in this sheltered space. It's the inverse of the sept, in which people were bonded through faith and hope. Now they're bonded through pain. But this also speaks to Cersei's very particular views on gender. As she will say in Sansa 6, she always felt cheated of the possibilities open to men, all of which in Cersei's mind seemed to have to do with violence and death. Men are allowed to go out there and risk themselves in bloodshed. Women must bleed passively inside, waiting for the battle to be over. Cersei reinforces this worldview when she compares, quote, loyal sellswords to, quote, virgin whores. That's what the state of innocence means to the two different genders, as far as Cersei is concerned, and the world quickly takes both kinds of innocence away. As such, Cersei feels free to articulate what Lawless could not. If the battle turns against them, their guards will abandon them to the invaders' tender mercies. Cersei does not, of course, empathize with her fellow women on this basis. She despises them for their weakness and foolishness in her eyes. You can see that clearly in how she treats Sansa. Cersei knows that Sansa has never been educated about what happens during a sack. George is also critiquing fantasy stories that allied the grim realities of what wrestling a city away from the evil villains would really look like in practice. All Sansa can do is parrot what she's been told. True knights would never hurt them. The words ring hollowly on her ears. She has seen too much to believe in that anymore. Illin Payne, Marin Trant, Dantos Hollard, Sandor Clegane... They've all made clear it doesn't quite work that way. Rather than nurture her development, however, Cersei just mocks Sansa for for her naivete. Yet her cynicism comes off, if anything, worse. While it is necessary to burst those childish bubbles, George is showing us via Cersei how adulthood does not always translate into maturity. The lies have poisoned Cersei. Will they poison Sansa? This becomes the drama of the next couple Sansa chapters, I think, really as much as the outcome of the battle itself. Right. I mean, like the, the entire dynamic is that Cersei and everyone around Sansa is using euphemism in order to placate Sansa, using sweet sounding words to keep them all in one place so that as soon as the battle actually unfolds and the potential that the, the city is taken by Stannis, that they could all be basically the way that an animal would be just before he's slaughtered. So to be, so to speak, sort of gentled and kept, 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 uh, kept sane. And I think like... <laughs> Yeah, that dynamic is just really, really bad for for Sansa. Sansa and everyone in that room with Cersei knows the reality of what's coming to them. And Cersei is not doing a good job of instructing her her charge, her her potential future daughter-in-law in the form of Sansa. And I think like, you know, in earlier Clash of Kings brand chapters, we both talked about how everything that Bran was learning at the feet of Lewin, Roderick, the other people in Winterfell was subtle but explicit royal training for the kid. And we also kind of talked about this too in the context of Sansa and that she was learning similar things in King's Landing in A Clash of Kings, building her up to her likely future queen in the North role. 
But with Sansa at chapter's end, it's different in that Sansa's learning how not to rule as Cersei and her henchmen are doing here at chapter's end. Sansa observes how Cersei is ruling cheerlessly, having headsmen wait around to murder them if things go bad, getting chippy and undercutting the morale in an already tense situation. Now, if season eight of the throne show is a guide for what to expect, then a lot of the what not to do training that Sansa receives here at the Black Order will be informative to how Sansa holds her own quote unquote women's court when Winterfell comes under siege from the others. So again, it's the lies, those gentle sounding lies in order to make people feel comfortable. The the optics that she is learning at in, in the sept, it's the chivalry, it's the imagery, it's all coming to, to a head here. And Sansa's also learning what not to do when a castle is under dire siege. And I have to imagine that the siege of Winterfell by the others is likely going to be much, much more dire than what Stannis could potentially bring to King's Landing if, and God bless him, if he wins. So I think that's good about wrap us up for the depth section. Moving on to foreshadowing groundwork. So Sansa hopes that Joffrey's courage fails and that his men desert him. And her prayers are answered in the battle. But sadly, so sadly, Tywin Lannister shows up to save the Lannisters in the nick of time. Yep, so unfortunate. But yeah, um, it's uh, I think something George is doing to show that the conduct of the king, while it certainly impacts the battle, I think the Blackwater goes worse than it had to on the Lannister side because of what ends up happening with Joffrey. It's not... Not not the whole sum of what's going on in the Battle of Blackwater. Neither Joffrey nor Stannis actually end up being central in themselves. It's more just the idea of them. The shadow, you could say, that, that ends up mm-hmm. becoming important to the to the overall outcome. Mm-hmm. And yes, speaking of uh, things to come in the Battle of Blackwater, Joffrey makes a passing reference to uh, killing his uncle. You know, of course, they're talking about Stannis and Sansa thinks, so one of his Kingsguard might do it for you. And it does come to pass that one of Joffrey's Kingsguard goes after his uncle, but the uncle in question is Tyrion, of course, not Stannis. <laughs> and I think that's might have been a great slide joke that George worked in there yeah. to show that, you know, that on the surface they're talking about Stannis, but actually it's, it's, it's you know, the uncle on the Lannister side on your own side that your own Kingsguard are going to go after. That's going to be so much fun to talk about who actually dispatched Mandid Moore to try and kill Tyrion when we get to that that portion of the Battle of the Blackwater in just a, just a few weeks' time. But yeah, I, I love George's like subtle, sly references here and the way that he does the interplay with wordplay and and, and the way that he, he tries to show, to foreshadow things in a very subtle way. And, and as George has said before, he does, these, he does this intentionally to reward people who are rereading and reading in depth. And that's the kind of stuff that he loves, which of course is, uh, which I, I take to be a George basically... Endorsing the Not a Cast podcast being the the penultimate or the ultimate reread podcast of A Song of Ice and Fire. So moving away for, from foreshadowing groundwork and, and talking more about theory discussion. Now there really isn't like a, a theory we can mm-hmm. talk about about Sansa Stark and the future of the Winds of Winter or a Dream of Spring. A lot of that's going to come in these future Sansa chapters in a Clash of Kings. But we are here at the Bla- Battle of the Blackwater, and I figure to ask you, Emmett, what do you make of the battle as a generally peacenik guy and maybe I'm, I'm describing you wrongly and you can correct me if, if i am wrong and how do you think george a fellow generally peacenik guy how does he end up writing some of the finest battle prose in modern fiction and while we're at it i'll jump in and talk about all the glorious work george is doing with the battle of the blackwater and what it says for the major battle set pieces planning plan that he's planning to open the winds of winter so i turn it over to you sir how do you make how do you make of the battle of the blackwaters as both the stannis loyalist question mark <laughs> And also as as you, as, as Emmett Booth, the, the guy behind the poor Quentin uh, fandom presence. Well, I think in terms of how George writes the battle prose, I think he approaches it, especially from Davos' perspective, as horror more than as dry, you know, uh, a description of, of, of the battle formations. And he does the same thing with the attack of the 
uh, the White Walkers and the Army of the Dead beyond the Wall and the Storm of Swords. But I think also, as George just talked about, he understands in a kind of, again, like guilty, furtive Catholic way, the appeal of war as the essence of, of a romantic expression of humanity. And also because, as he says, because, you know, real life, peaceful life, it's great because it's not violent, but it's also kind of boring. And that's why a lot of people try to leave it. People who can't make peace with it or make sense of it or can't do with the, you know, the repetition of it. Like he says, you know, uh, uh, fantasy is, is jetting off to Middle Earth and reality is just, you know, flying Southwest Airlines to Ohio. Like, that's what peace looks like. And, you know, I think I think George understands the the kind of... Uh, the need for wars being connected at some deep psychological level to the adolescent need for adventure that inspires fantasy stories and, you know, also Victorian novels of adventure stories of, you know, people wandering all over the world and not caring what culture they were trampling on. Like these do these, you know, these things go together. And I think George is aware of that and teasing that out. I mean, me personally, you know, when I come at battle fiction, you know, the thing I find insidious and, and bad about war isn't even first and foremost the battle itself. It's that there are people who, it's the people who use it as a governing tool and and use it as a way to, uh, you know, inflict shock value on economies and then scoop up a lot of money. And I think that that is something that's constant in war, no matter what era or what part of the world you're talking about. And we see it here. I mean, people are trying to, you know, people are basically betting on the Battle of Blackwater on both sides and trying to speculate a bunch of money off of it. And Salador Sand winkles himself a title over it, but just keeps being a pirate on the Blackwater Bay. <laughs> that's the kind of stuff that haunts me about, about war policy and about, you know, really just centralized state policy in general. It's just got this most blunt and horrifying, I think, in war policy is that it's 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 never just about the 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 tip of the spear collision between armies, as horrifying as that often is. It's about it's about the people watching. In, you know, it's 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 not people going to tower going good, good. You know, George doesn't like those villains for a reason, but that. um you know, uh, to come back to Gravity's Rainbow, that the true war is a celebration of markets, as, as Pynchon wrote in Gravity's Rainbow, and that just to, to be aware that really what really what you're doing in the process of war is breaking down how much a human being is worth in its most primal form. And that that process, I think, is is overall bad for humanity, even if you can point to plenty of situations where really the only solution is going in there with a bunch of guys and spears. Like, yeah, I understand that there are plenty of those situations. It's just as a governing principle, I... But, you know, I don't... What what other governing principles are there for society other than war? We've, we've done a terrible job coming up with them. So it's not I like mean, I have a solution yeah. for that shit. I mean, I mean, yeah, I put you majorly on the spot there. With, no, with it's the, fun to talk question. about, but it's just like I end up just kind of in a hopeless position. I think that I think that's that's honestly the, the position that George is taking with, with the Battle of the Blackwater, and, and I and I think I love how how really how you feel in the Battle of the Blackwater is not. Like, yeah, yeah, go Stannis, get get in there. I mean, maybe some people are, but I don't think that that's actually George's intent when he's writing the Battle of the Blackwater. He's writing like, oh, actually, you know, it would be kind of bad if Stannis took, took, took King's Landing. What's going to happen to the people in King's Landing if his army is coming in before Stannis can even arrive in the city itself? I mean, Stannis might be a generally generally just guy so to speak and is generally frowning upon rape and upon like the poor conduct of his soldiers but that's still not going to stop a lot of his men from doing the those very things that are that he's standing against in in a battle scene 
Right. As we found yep. out on the wall, because I mean, right, Stannis' men do commit rapes against the wildlings and things like that before. And his his words and his his example don't necessarily lend itself to to good conduct of his soldiers. And I I think like no, I'm sorry, you 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 no, got a point just, that I you, you're so right, but it's like so like but like the but like then then the problems become so much deeper and bigger to wrestle with than one army or one commander yeah. or one battle can solve. And it's just like. So if yeah, you think about the 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 problem you just raised, like if, even if you want Stannis, even if you're cheering for him in the most possible way to him to take the city, him taking the city involves a horror show, and there's no real meaningful way to compensate the people for that, and there also probably wouldn't even be an attempt to compensate the people for that. <laughs> so, and it's 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 like you to, to to solve that problem, you would have to break down the fact that Stannis can command that many people, and the fact that the people in King's Landing don't have any other options, and like that. Solving problems of that magnitude requires generations of work, even if you're not like, you know, sit, sitting back like Obama with his latest memoir to talk about your unique perspective on how the Titanic sinks. <laughs> even if you're not taking that kind of approach, like these are intractable problems that Stannis cannot be called upon reasonably to solve. So that doesn't really get you anywhere either. It's 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 totally correct. It's just useless, which I think is ends up being a lot of this kind of conversation. You know what I mean? I, I do. I, yeah, I totally I'm totally with you on that being like it, it does feel useless and you do feel I, I think people feel and I feel this way. I feel small like when I come to like a, like these battle scenes both, right both by the, yep. mm-hmm. the the size of, of what's of the scope of what's going on, but also just not just the battle itself, but extending it beyond like all the societal problems like ultimately the problems uh, of the battle of the Blackwater and why people are fighting is over feudalism. Right. Who is who who is who has the, the ability to to lead the country is it is by birth by by station by the fact that one person is claiming to be robert's heir and does it actually like it does it actually make for a for a just set of principles of, of rulership and, and the reason why people should be fighting i yes maybe i mean joffrey's obviously a monster right i mean we hitler was obviously a monster but does it actually solve like the long-term human condition of, of of fighting these battles and these wars in order to sustain the feudalistic Westerosi society? Does fighting these long-term battles sustain our own system of government? Uh, these are questions that are beyond even even me as Joffrey slash Brennan B. Fish to, to really answer. So I think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis on the Clash of Kings Sansa 5. I hope you all have enjoyed this. I think it's been a kick-ass episode. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, YouTube. You know, obviously, those of you folks who are watching on your live streams, hit that thumbs up, subscribe, hit the alert button so that you know when we're actually going to be doing one of these live streams every single Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And yeah, do all that sort of stuff. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire, WordPress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, the Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Nerybald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way, of course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Sir 
Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjakot, Alchemist of Sets and Quantum, Mage of the Arts of Bull and the Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Merrifull, Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and King Keeper of the King's Anvil, Lord Young of the Ghost Woods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Donatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, Caretaker at the End of the Crossroads, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Carly, Lady Joan, who adds Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs to her title, and Lady Amy Blackfire, Analyzer of Chinese Literature and dis- Dismantler of the Patriarchy. Thank you so much, as always, to our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you all so very, very much, and love the new title, Joan. So, join us next week for A Clash of Kings, Davos 3. You guessed it. Part 1, in which the fleet flying the banner of the Fire God gets blown apart by fire now. That can't be right. Is that what happens? That is irony. That just can't be allowed to happen. Everything must be straight-laced and straightforward, as Stannis demands it. (laughs) So thanks so much for listening. Thank you to all of you who are watching. And we will see you all next week for Clash of Kings Davos 3, Part 2.